This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Many Americans see their local universities as cultural centers that improve the surrounding community. But for many African Americans, white-led colleges and institutions have been built by undermining or even destroying our neighborhoods. And that troubling history for Virginia's Christopher Newport University is the subject of a new ProPublica investigation. This story is a story that's historical, but it's also still happening today. Erasing the Black Spot, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Town versus gown is shorthand for the conflicts that often arise between colleges and universities and the neighborhoods that surround them. But many of these institutions were founded or expanded at the direct expense of the existing communities, especially if those communities were predominantly African-American. One example of this troubling history was highlighted in a report entitled Erasing the Black Spot, How a Virginia College Expanded by Uprooting a Black Neighborhood. The report was a collaboration between ProPublica and the Virginia Center for Investigative Journalism and documents the way Christopher Newport University displaced the historically black community of Shoe Lane in Newport News, Virginia. Joining us to talk about it is Brandy Kellum. She's an Emmy award-winning investigative journalist, and she co-authored the story. Brandy Kellum, welcome to A Word. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here today. For those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with it, can you just describe Christopher Newport University today? Yes, absolutely. So Christopher Newport University is a predominantly white college. Uh, Right now, it sits still in the center of Newport News. It was started in 1960 without a permanent location, and ultimately, it landed on the spot that it is today by displacing a predominantly black community. Right now, the college is pretty much one of the youngest in the state of Virginia. It hasn't been around very long in terms of other more historical institutions like UVA and William and Mary, but it was a branch college of William and Mary, which was of interest at the time because Newport News did not have a college. And also because that was the time in our country where you saw more colleges and institutions popping up. So during this education boom, you had these colleges popping up and Christopher Newport happened to be the one that displaced this community in the center of the city, which, as you know, by the reporting, no longer exists today. So, Brandy, there's this sort of amazing anecdote at the beginning of the story um, that I think really sets the stage for what these people have gone through over the last 60-something years in this community. Tell us a little bit about that anecdote and, and how you came upon that story. Yeah, so the anecdote tells the story of Katie Luck. Uh, she is still one of the remaining residents that lives in the community today. She lived there through a lot of changes that happened. She's a former school teacher, and uh, she's lived there probably about three or four decades. She remembers a lot of the things that happened over the course of the last 20 or 30 years as houses started to disappear in the community. But she also remembers what it was like when it was a thriving middle-class Black community. So she's sitting in her front yard one day, And having all this memory about what the community used to be, a school bus drives past her house and a white student yells out, you don't belong here. So to her, that was extremely shocking, right? As someone who used to live, who knows what the community used to be and has lived there for a long time. What was this black community like in Newport News before Christopher Newport College kind of entered the picture? So the black community had been around, at least from our research, 
since the end of the Civil War, so the late 1800s. So you had black people who were buying acres of land, which seems pretty unusual when we think about how much land black people own in this country today. But these were people who were farmers, they were laborers, they had odd jobs, and they used the pennies that they saved to buy acres of land. I think one family had about 30 acres in their name. And the plan was to keep this land in the family name, in the black community and residents' names, and pass it down from generation to generation to continue and create that generational wealth. And so this was a very self-sufficient community. They relied on each other to help pay for expenses, to gain employment, to live. And they also took care of their family members and provided places for their family to stay. I've got to ask this about the community. And Brandy, I'm very excited about this story because it affects me personally. My mother went to Christopher Newport College. I was born down there. And so when I start reading about this story, my own family did not know this. They, they, they moved down to Virginia to go to school, so they did not know this history. So did people there know this explicit racial motivation where Christopher Newport College was being built? Because as, as outsiders, my family were sort of northerners coming down. They didn't know this. That's a really great question. The black citizens of the city, some of them still remember it to this day, right? Even though it happened in the 1960s when the city decided to essentially gut the core of the black community, that left a stain on Newport News' black residents for, for decades, almost to the point where now you kind of see it in the student population at the school because there are only 7% black students attending the school when the city is actually split down the middle white black residents. So that did leave that stain on the black residents of Newport News. But if you ask a lot of the white residents, a lot of them did not know the history. Uh, so the school had actually acknowledged it years ago, but our reporting actually goes a little bit deeper into what happened over the span of 60 years, whereas the school acknowledged the original taking, we actually went further to show how the community was essentially demolished and decimated over a 60-year time period. And I don't think people actually knew that part of the story. I mean, they knew what the school had acknowledged publicly, but they did not know how this played out even today, where you still have five homes left. So if you ask people who live in Newport News, no, they didn't know that this was the full history of how this community was essentially erased. But if you ask the black residents who remember the 1960s, yes, of course they remember what happened. What was some of the process behind this? Like, usually when we see these sort of land grabs, um, especially in the South, it's usually either a result of sort of white vigilante violence, and then the city comes in and uses eminent domain and some sort of rule. Like, did eminent domain play a role? Was there community violence or was there both? Which one was sort of a bigger impact? That's why this story is so fascinating, because this was done legally and all on the books. So eminent domain is a tool that the city used to take these props to seize the properties from the black residents in the 1960s. And we know eminent domain is a tool that is a constitutional right of governments to take property for public use. And they are supposed to pay the landowners a fair value for their property. In this case, we know that some of the homeowners were actually underpaid for some of their properties in the 1960s. And then also separate from that, there were still people who held off to 
avoid selling their land to the college and ultimately it was just condemned, right? So eminent domain was the power that was used overall to take these properties legally. The citizens did show up to advocate that the city choose other areas, which as our reporting shows, there were actually alternative sites that were cheaper the city could have used. And there were also alternative sites that had less controversy because there weren't Black residents living there had been there since the end of the Civil War. But ultimately, the city decided to take the property, despite the complaints and concerns of the Black residents at that time. We're going to take a short break. We come back more on the troubled history of Christopher Newport University. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about ProPublica's investigation of how a Southern university was built by dismantling a black neighborhood. Our guest is journalist Brandy Kellum. A moment ago, we were talking about the sort of origin of Christopher Newport University, but this wasn't just a moment in history. Taking over community was a decades-long process. Can you tell us, like, how the legal battle evolved? How did this process evolve? Yeah, so we know what happened in the 1960s with the core being taken by eminent domain, which was a legal process and a power that the government had to do that at the time. What's actually interesting in this case is that even though the city actually took the core of the community, there were still residents that remained around the outskirts. That actually grew to a community of about 90 homeowners by 1980. So you have more people, families actually living in the neighborhood in the 1980s than you did in the 1960s. And ultimately what happened was, unbeknownst to the people who were still there holding on to the community that was left after the original taking, the school expanded its boundaries to swallow up the rest of the homes. So it went from the core of the community to the outskirts of the streets that bounded the campus and the rest of the homes. And so that actually developed into a lawsuit in the late 1980s, early 1990s. It never went to trial because it was dismissed in pretrial hearing by the judge who asked the families to attach other homeowners, which became a complicated issue. But they did try to fight this case. They hired an attorney, a civil rights attorney in Richmond, Virginia. And ultimately, they did not win. But they actually hoped that the lawsuit would at least awaken some of the people in the area who had decisive power over their rights to live there to show that they weren't going down without a fight. So ultimately, while they did lose, they felt like their voices were at least heard in the legal field, even though it didn't help. I think once the residents saw that they were, they had lost the battle in court, they all saw the writing on the wall. And then you saw the school just swallow up the homes, like houses just being purchased in droves every year up until this point. And there are just five houses left. And the ones who live in the houses that are still left are some of the ones that were there in the 1960s. And you saw Mr. Johnson, who we talked to in our story, documented everything. He documented the houses being demolished. He documented the dumpsters taking away debris. He documented everything. Tell me a bit about about Mr. Johnson and the Johnson family and the role they've played uh, in your investigative report and in this long battle with Christopher Newport University. 
Yeah, so the Johnson family, they have ties back to the community since the early 1900s at least. James's grandfather was the one that purchased the 30 acres of land that they wanted to develop into 35 homes for black middle-class families to live on, right? So James himself, he always says, I was born on the land. I mean, he literally was born there. He was raised there. He saw it from his early days to now he's like 83 years old, right? He's seen a lot over time. So he has a strong tie to this community because his family was part of the beginning stages of the community. And now he's one of the the last living residents there. Has his family stayed? I mean, did he have a a, a wife and kids? Have his kids grown up and left? Where is his family while he is continuing the fight? So his wife still lives with him in the house. Um, They were married in their 20s. So they've been married for over 60 years. They lived in the house. They actually built the house. You know, they hired contractors, but they also built it, some of it with their own bare hands, right? They built the foundation and a lot of other aspects about the house. So this was like blood, sweat, and tears really went into building this home for themselves. And so they do have three children. Uh, two of their children actually ironically attended Christopher Newport University, but um, they don't. They no longer live in the house on Shoe Lane. They live in other parts of the city. And then they still have relatives who were displaced during the time of the 1960s and in later years that are scattered across the city as well. But they're holding strong on their land. They're going to stay there until however long possible they can live there. What do we know about the families that were displaced over the years? I mean, basically, they were undersold. And I I think this was also sort of an important context. It's not just the eminent domain requires the city or the government to pay people market value. But if that market value is deflated because of institutional racism, right? Like black people's homes were always undervalued in the 60s because black people were there. So even if people got paid a market rate, it was still less than the value. So the families that did leave, what has happened to them? Did they they move into other communities? Did they just move three miles away? What do we know about them? Yeah, so the families that did leave, ultimately they scattered across the city. So the sense of community was essentially wiped out by this original taking. And if you look at the makeup of the city of Newport News today, you can see where different housing policies have affected the way and where Black people live in the city. So those who were looking to move up to a better area, like where the university is, like where this Black community could have developed into a middle-class community, ended up having to go back downtown, where today you see downtown Newport News is high crime, high poverty, lack of resources. Everything about that shows that there was a dearth of resources in this particular area, Newport News, that they could have had if they were allowed to stay in that middle class development that was looking to be developed at the time. Your story explains, you know, how this process has played out not just for Christopher Newport University, but around the country. And I'll tell you, as somebody who uh, you know, attended UVA and Chapel Hill and Duke. I mean, every single, especially down south, we hear that about every public university, that they ate up a black community in order to, you know, expand for dorms or something else like that. People are pushed out. What are some other places where this has happened? It happened pretty much everywhere in this country, but some of the major universities are some of your Ivy League universities. It happened in New York, Columbia University. It happened in Philadelphia. It happened across the country. And I think that to your point, when we look at the erasure or the displacement of Black 
residents in this country, we don't necessarily think about colleges or universities first. We think about the highway system and how that divided black communities during the boom of the highway when it was built in the 1960s, right? But when you think about all of these institutions that are established across the country today and the price that black residents had to pay in order for these institutions to establish themselves and grow and still expand today, because mind you, this story is a story that's historical, but it's also still happening today, right? You still have colleges who are expanding and building research parks, so they're further infiltrating these black communities that they initially disrupted. But I think this story shows us that despite urban renewal and the highway system, that we see the racial, racial implications um, of how educational institutions also played a role in disrupting and dismantling black communities across the country. We're going to take a short break. We come back more about the troubling history of Christopher Newport University with journalist Brandy Kellum. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about how one predominantly white university destroyed a black neighborhood. Our guest is ProPublica reporter Brandy Kellum. Now, it's funny, Brandy, I told you earlier, this is like a personal story for me because my family went there. I was born down there. I did not know this history, um, but it's personal for you as well. Tell us a little bit about what drew you to this story. Yeah, so I'm actually from this area of Virginia. I grew up in Chesapeake, Virginia, which is about maybe 30 minutes away from Newport News. When I grew up, you always heard negative things about the city. I think that's part of what piqued my curiosity because when I, when I covered social justice issues as a producer in previous roles at other companies, I got to see, I got to talk to people in these different communities and I started to think about the community that, that I am from and whether there were also reasons why I heard bad things about Newport News uh, that I heard growing up, that there had to be a reason for this. There had to be an explanation for it. And so I also had a personal connection to the area because I ran track in high school. And so we competed at Newport News. Christopher Newport was really the only indoor facility that we had access to as young track stars in Virginia during that time. Right now there are more, but really CNU was one of the first indoor facilities. So when I started investigating the history of poverty and how black people have lack of access to different resources, especially housing and where they live in the city, I started to uncover this story. And when I first heard about it, it piqued my curiosity because in my mind as a journalist, I felt like there was something missing. I had talked to people who told me the story and that there were still houses left. But when I talked to the people who currently owned the narrative of the story, you know, I'm hearing, oh, no, everyone's gone. There are no houses left. We didn't get a chance to talk to these people. And in my mind, I'm like, no, 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 this doesn't sound right. So I start knocking on doors and I meet some of the families that remember everything from the 1960s up until this point. So I just, I, you know, meeting the families and meeting Mr. Johnson, who you saw, his collection was just it was just unbelievable, right? And this man has collected photos. Like I said, he's collected letters, land deeds. He has all the receipts you could name to prove that this used to be a community that could have been a thriving middle-class Black community today. And when I saw that, it moved me. And so I felt like this was a story instinctively that needed to be told in this way. Does, does Mr. Johnson and some of the elders that you spoke to do they think that the black community in, in Newport News has a future? Do, do they basically say, 
look, you know, once we're gone, my grandkids don't want to come down here. No one's going to want to take care of this house. It'll eventually get sold. Do they think that all of this history is going to be gone in another 20 years? Yeah, even less than 20. Like, they think it's going to be gone in seven in 2030, because that's when they think the school is going to enforce the boundaries. We don't know that to be true at this point, but that's the fear that they have is that because they read this in the newspaper that they think in the next few years that they don't know what their future is in their own home and they could still be living at that point. There are five houses left. So essentially they already know the community is gone. And I think if it weren't for his collection, the story of the Shoe Lane community would actually be lost. And so I think that they're, they know and they've acknowledged the fact that the college has essentially swallowed up what they knew to be a community that they grew up in and that they grew to love and grew in close relation to the people who they live next to. But I think that they also know that it's, it's inevitable, right, that, that the college is going to get the rest of their homes. They just don't know when. What has been the university's response. Now you talked about, you know, they control some of the narrative, but what's been the university's response to this story? Because in my cynical brain, the way this goes is when the last member of that original black community passes away, some progressive university administrators like, you know what? We're going to rename the residence hall Shoe Lane Hall. We're going to open up the African-American studies department of Shoe Lane or something else like that. Like how has the university responded to this and what do you think they're going to do when they have finally run everybody else out. I think that they are talking about that right now. I sense that this story has ruffled a few feathers, and I honestly sense that there's a lot of interest right now in addressing and trying to figure out how they're going to address this anyway. What I honestly think is that one of the underlying questions in our story was this plaque you know, that's dedicated to a member of the community who was also serving on the Board of Visitors, the governing body of the college. The plaque acknowledges his role as a member of the community, but it also says he became a staunch supporter of the college. And ultimately, he knew the college was beneficial to the area over the community that used to exist there. So instinctively, that reads out of touch with what the experiences have been of the residents there, right? So I think at bare minimum, the residents would like to see something addressed when it comes to that particular sign, because that's a huge conflict of interest to acknowledge that this person was a part of the community, but also that this person became a staunch supporter of the college, but they also served on your board of visitors, right? And I think they would feel, the community residents who remember the story of Shoe Lane and how everything happened, would honestly feel like they would be better served by something that acknowledges everyone else that lived there and actually the full conflict, not just what happened in the 1960s, but everything after that, right? So, and and to answer your question, I think the college is, we don't have any official statements from them in terms of the plague. But we are seeing that they are talking about this internally, and we're just waiting to see what they're going to do about it. I always like to end the show on sort of a positive note, if we can, or some way that people can get involved, be optimistic. Um, What would be the best case scenario for the community there, for the residents who are still there? If their wildest dreams came true, if they could wave a magic wand, what would they want to see happen over the next seven years? Obviously, they don't want to be pushed out of their homes. But what would they like to see? 
I think they would like to see, to your point, they don't want to be pushed out, but I also think they would like to see the community remembered in the way that they think it should be remembered. I don't think this is a story where they could get money back for the properties that were lost. I think that would take some legal conversation and research to determine even if they if they got their property value in later years. You know, some people may feel like they did, others may not. But I think overall, I think it's a question of whether the college will at least at the bare minimum acknowledge the community at its fullness. And I think that with the national attention that this story has gotten, I've heard a lot from the residents of the community. I've gotten a lot of calls from them. They're very happy that the true story of the Shoe Lane community has now been told. Whereas before it was just controlled by the college, I think they feel like they have more of a voice and that the history has been preserved in a way that it wasn't before. So I think they're happy with that, but I think that they want the college to acknowledge this as well, not just with the plaque celebrating a member of the community that also was on the Board of Visitors, but something that acknowledges the history of this community and the potential impact they would have had on the entire city of Newport News, the positive impact that they could have had on the rest of the city if they were allowed to stay. Journalist Brandi Kellum reports for ProPublica. Her story on Christopher Newport University was produced in partnership with the Virginia Center for Investigative Journalism. Brandy, thank you so much. This is a, a really amazing story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.